Well, if you were looking for an explanation of our opening hymn today, uh, you can find it uh, as we turn in our study of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, we've been walking through for the last several weeks. Today, we have made it to chapter 2, as we hear of uh, the narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ and the appearance of the angels to the shepherds. Today, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we will read through verse 21. You can find that on page 857 in our ESVs. The Gospel according to Luke, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, and reading through verse 21. Before we read God's word together, please join me in prayer. O gracious Lord and God, you who are far above all the highest heavens, and yet you who have stooped down in the person of your Son to rescue a people to yourself, we thank you for the account that we will read today. We thank you much more that this account is true. Thank you that Christ was incarnate for us and for our salvation. And we pray that you would help us to rejoice in him today. Give us your Holy Spirit so we would see something of Christ and know more of you and worship you truly as we ought. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone about them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And the angels went away from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph with the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Well, it happened uh, this week, as it often uh, happens 
to me, perhaps happens to you. I was reading the scriptures somewhere around uh, the narratives of Elijah and Elisha, and I came across a passage that either I had simply never noticed before or just had completely forgotten uh, because it was as if I was discovering something new for the first time, and it was exciting all over again, and it felt like a discovery. Now, I know for a fact that I have read the passage that caught me by surprise plenty of times before. I've read it uh, in private study and family worship. I read it for seminary and for my undergrad work. I'm familiar with that passage. I know I've read it before, and so it it wasn't actually new to me, but in that moment, God's word took me by surprise, and it was fascinating all over again. And sometimes that's the way God's word comes to us. Sometimes it happens that God's word delights us with its freshness. But often the delight that we take in God's word centers on what is familiar. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the reason your husband refuses to throw away that collection of old t-shirts that he has. They're old and they're worn and some of them have holes and and a few of them don't even fit, uh, but they're comfortable and they're familiar and there is something uh, comforting about them that cannot simply be replaced by something new. And maybe that's the way that Luke chapter 2 meets you today. Maybe as I read Luke chapter 2, you couldn't help but hear the King James language in your mind. Maybe you heard Linus reading it to you. Proclaiming glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Maybe as I read, you heard the voice of your father. And the nostalgia of a lifetime of Christmases flooded your memory. That's often how this incarnation account meets us. And it meets us with that childlike wonder of hearing our favorite story all over again and anticipating all of the details that you already know and yet still being amazed by the way that it plays out. Except it's much better because unlike your favorite story of your childhood, this one is actually true. And this one still has the power to take us by surprise. We are surprised as we consider all over again the one who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, who took on humanity to suffer and to bleed and to die for his people. And even if you've heard it a hundred times before, it still delights you. Today, as we walk through this very familiar passage, I simply want to pause in a few places and point out these truths that we've heard a hundred times before. And I hope, my, my prayer is, that as we do that, perhaps the Lord will show you something you've forgotten, something that you've overlooked, and, and we together will rejoice in the joy of the Savior all over again. Now, the passage begins with the absolute most mundane of life's details. It begins with taxes. That's what verse 1 is all about. It's showing us the necessity of governing some massive population of people. You know how it is. Roads need to be built. Colosseums have to be erected. And navies have to be supplied. And so the decree goes out and gather uh, the population together and have a head count. Make sure that we can calculate the revenue so that the machinery of Rome can keep chugging along. Nobody likes to pay taxes, but it's the kind of thing that has to be done. And so you don't think much about it, and and it's so boring, it's so blasé, and at least that's how taxes look from the bottom of the food chain. It's just another 
detail of your life, but uh, the view from the top is much different. Because in verse 1, what Luke is doing is he's showing us the most powerful man in all the world at his most influential moment. This is how Phil Riken puts it. He says, death and taxes. Nothing demonstrates the power of nations more clearly than their ability to take people's money and to send them to war. That's what's happening here. Caesar is calling the steps and the whole world has to dance. And so Luke is identifying this Caesar for us by uh, his popular name, by the name that was given to him by the Senate, Caesar Augustus. Augustus means the illustrious one. Caesar himself actually preferred a much longer, much more formal title. Uh, it was Imperator Caesar Divi Filius Augustus, or rather Commander Caesar Augustus, Son of God. And now, as he's moving, as he's decreeing, as he's taxing the people, Caesar is at his most godlike. He's counting the subjects of his empire the way that children count marbles on the playground. Now, the delicious irony for those of us in the know is that Caesar merely imagines that he's in charge. He thinks that the entire world moves for him. But Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, reminds us the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he can turn it wherever he wills. And so what we are actually seeing in verse 1 is the hand of the Lord moving the heart of the man who can move the multitudes. And we're seeing that the decree of Caesar actually was serving the plan of God, a plan the Lord had set in motion before he laid the foundations of the earth, a plan that he decreed through his servant Micah centuries before that the one was coming to save his people and he would be born in Bethlehem. And so there is crowding and travel and economic disruption, and it's all for the sake of bringing Mary and Joseph to the place they were supposed to be. Matthew Henry tells us all the world shall be at the trouble of being enrolled, only that Joseph and Mary may be enrolled. And the Lord is working out his plan, his sovereign direction to bring them to the place that it was foretold, to bring them to the place that the shepherds would find them, to bring them to the place that the Lord and his sovereignty had determined. And this is the first note of truth that we need to see about this passage. It is the truth of God's sovereignty over the circumstances of Jesus' birth. There is no detail, whether small or great, that has not been planned and arranged and set in motion by the one who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. From the decree of Caesar to the delivery of Christ, every piece moves at God's command. But perhaps here is where we begin to run into conflict. Because if the Lord is so sovereignly directing this story, you might wonder why all the hardship for Joseph and for Mary. I mean, from a human standpoint, we understand it. The decree goes out and... Joseph doesn't have much of a choice. He can't simply go down to the local tax office and pull out Form 95B and file uh, for a hardship exemption. He can't simply say to the Roman Empire, you know, uh, now's not really a good time uh, for me to be away from home. And so Mary has to make a choice. She has to choose between a very pregnant 80-mile walk or she has to choose between staying 
behind without Joseph in a town where everyone but Joseph whispers her name in disapproving tones. And the passage seems to indicate that the whole journey was a last-minute change and an inconvenience for this couple. They've already toured the maternity wing of Nazareth's general. Joseph has already agreed to Mary's mother. Yes, I will text you when the contractions are five minutes apart so that you can be there, you can hold her hand, you can coach her through the whole thing. We've got it planned out. The bag is packed and waiting by the door. And now this decree, and now it's all gone pear-shaped. And now they're stuck in this overcrowded, unfamiliar city, trying in vain to find a place to bring their baby into the world. And if the Lord is sovereign, why all this hardship? Why all the hassle? If Jesus Christ himself is the sovereign son that Hebrews 1.3 tells us holds the universe, upholds the universe by the word of his power, why is it that he chooses to enter the world jostled and displaced by a foreign despot 1,400 miles away? Have you ever wondered about that? Surely there's another way to do this, right? The Lord is able to send angels. Why not send another angel and simply tell them, you know, now's the time. You've got several months. Go to Bethlehem. Get established. Why not make sure that the only vacant room for miles and miles around is waiting for them? Why not have a whole army of midwives waiting to attend to this lonely, frightened mother who is barely in her teens? Why does Christ enter the world through suffering and tears and temporary homelessness? He does it because that's where the people are who he came to save. Jesus came into the world as a Jew to bring salvation to the Jews and also to the Gentiles. And it is fitting as a Jew to come into the world and to subject himself together with the oppression and the subjugation that his people had endured for centuries because of their sinfulness and their rebellion against the Lord. And he proclaimed before that other kingdoms will come and remove you from your land and other rulers will come and rule over you and this will be uh, the lot of the people who have followed their, their, uh, their own desires toward idolatry, that they will be a subjugated people. And Christ does not spare himself then. And as the savior of the world, he came into displacement. He came into the homelessness that all humanity has endured since that moment that our first parents were removed from their home with the Lord in the garden. And he came as one born of woman, born under the law. He came as the son of man to walk the earth with no place to lay his head. He came as the man of sorrows acquainted with grief and suffering. He came as the one, though he was the sovereign Lord, and every ruler and every governor and every emperor the world over was under his thumb. He lived as one who rendered unto Caesar that which was Caesar's. Because that's where we are. And he came to be with us. The incarnation reminds us that the sovereign Lord has entered into our suffering. Into our subjugation. Into our dislocation. Not because he was out of options. But because he came to be one with us. And to identify with us. To share in our sorrows and afflictions so that we could have hope of a homecoming with him. 
So Christ, the incarnate Lord, entered into our suffering. And he entered into our humility. You know, one of the difficulties we face when we read this passage is our urge to try and sanitize it. And if you don't believe me, uh, just sing a few stanzas of Away in a Manger. And there you'll find the little Lord Jesus laying down his sweet head and asleep on the hay. And there's no crying, there's no fussing, there's no chill of night air sweeping through that open stable. And the whole picture seems so serene and beautiful that you secretly wish that you had had the pleasure of being born in a manger. But the reality is that everything about Jesus' nursery smelled of earth and poverty and indignity. You know, the Hallmark Corporation would have you believe that Jesus was born in some standalone barn and he was laid in, in a sort of wooden trough that already looked a little bit like a cradle, quite frankly. And just, you know, you can imagine a few warm blankets and a little bit of straw and what a wonderful place to, uh, to be brought into the world. And there's this other tradition you've probably heard, and it goes back quite a while. It says maybe Jesus was born into a cave that some of the farmers and the shepherds would use as they were sheltering from the wind and the storm out there in the lonely places outside of Bethlehem. But the most likely situation, knowing what we know of the architecture of the day, is that Jesus was probably born in a private home. Probably born there, right, with some peasant family, in a one-room house packed with other visiting bodies for the census. And in that one room uh, home, off to the side, there would be a space, not a, not a room, but a space, a designated area for the livestock. And there'd be a little bit of roof, and, and the animals could be brought in at night to keep them safe from robbers and from animals and wolves and things of that nature. And in this one room house with the livestock area attached, there would really be sort of two levels, not two floors, but the area... Uh, for the animals to be a few feet lower uh, so that the whole house could be swept and, and all the rubbish would just be pushed in the, in the direction of the livestock, and that's okay. And it would have been right there between that upper area and that lower area, right in the floor, that there were a few places that were scooped out of the dirt and packed hard. And it was in those hollows, in those holes, that the feed and the grain was placed so the animals could come and stand and slobber and nose around and eat their fill. And most likely, it was in that hole, in that hollow in the earth that Christ was laid, wrapped up the way that babies were wrapped up at the time. You see, the thinking of the time was that if you allowed an infant to move their arms and their legs too much in the first few weeks, they would probably uh, suffer a deformity. And so... Uh, teenage Mary, all by herself with no one to attend her, takes her baby after he's been wiped clean and she stretches him straight and she binds him tight. And she lays him down in the only place that she can find. While strangers are within earshot and wondering who this young couple is and what they're doing here. And the message goes out to the shepherds. And the angel appears in the glory of the Lord, and, and midnight suddenly shines like daybreak. And the voice of the angel shakes the mountains until the shepherds quake with fear, and the messenger preaches the most wonderful sermon that anyone had ever heard. Unto you is born today a Savior. He is Christ. He is the anointed deliverer. He is the Lord incarnate. 
He is God made flesh, come to ransom his people from the bonds of iniquity. And you want to know how you're going to know which one he is. You want to know how to differentiate the Christ child from all the other children who might be in Bethlehem tonight. Just look for the one in the most humble of circumstances that you can imagine. He won't be there attended by nurses and and waited on by servants. He'll be pushed to the side. He'll be resting in a borrowed trough. I know. I know you've heard this before. At least every Christmas you've heard of the humble circumstances of Jesus' birth, but just for a moment, just for a moment, allow the humility of Christ's entrance into the world to grab your heart one more time. To think, what does it mean that Christ came to us in abject humility? Remember again that this humble entrance was just the pattern, the beginning of a pattern of his life and ministry for 33 years. Christ was the humble one. And so, as he was growing, the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, he lived in submission, in obedience. He was content to take instruction from his peasant parents in their ignorance. He was the one the angel called the son of the most high, and yet he associated with the lowly and the downcast. He spoke to lepers and he ministered to the misfits. And his hands that crafted galaxies also stooped low to wash dirt and filth off of the feet of a man who in a matter of six hours' time would deny that he ever knew him. And he was taken before the the governor and before the priest. And he who was the way and the truth and the life endured in silence while sinners spoke lies and blasphemies against him and demanded his execution. And when at last he laid down his life of his own accord, they did with his body in his burial what they did at his birth. They stretched him straight and wrapped him in linen cloths and they laid him in a hole in the ground that didn't belong to him. Matthew Henry writes that when Christ was on earth, he made himself remarkable by nothing so much as by his humiliation. And so it is. The defining characteristic of our Savior's walk was his humility. Humility in birth and humility in life and humility in death. Humility on our behalf. Humility to bring about peace with the God against whom we have rebelled in our pride and our willfulness. And he lived in humility as an example and as the calling for all of his people. Is that not the point of our faith, brothers and sisters? Philippians chapter 3, beginning about verse 8. Is it not the goal of our faith to suffer the loss of all things and to count them as rubbish in order that we may gain Christ, in order that we may be found in Christ, in order that we may know Christ and the power of his resurrection, in order that we may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, and we might add, like him in his humility. So what does it mean for you, dear believer, that the Lord of glory walked in humility? Who is it who is beneath you, who you are unwilling to associate with? 
What indignities do you refuse to bear? What false accusations are you unable to shoulder? What crosses, what afflictions are just too much for you? Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Christ suffered for you, giving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And dear friends, beginning in the manger, all of his steps walk the road of humility. And there's another surprising truth in this passage, and it has to do with the shepherds. And you know a few things about the shepherds, right? You could recall all of those Christmas sermons that you've heard, and we could have a conference later, and you could remind all the rest of us how these outcast shepherds are really just another indication of Jesus' humility. This is what uh, Mary had just spoken, right? That, that the Lord is the one who exalts those of humble estate, and here we see it happening. And, and it's humility all over again, these outcast shepherds. Or maybe you've heard, and rightly so, that, that these shepherds actually foreshadow something of Christ's atonement, because they are keeping sheep in the area where uh, the flocks for the temple sacrifices are kept. And so it is to them, the keepers of the sacrifice, that Christ is first announced. Or perhaps uh, you've been alerted to the fact that these shepherds are really just another link uh, in the chain that connects King Jesus to King David. You've seen it three times already in our passage, that royal name, the city of David and the line of David and the city of David. And, and here they are, these shepherds who remind us of that prototypical king who the Lord chose and, and rose to power and he took him from the pasture and put him in the palace. And here are these shepherds to remind us that this is what he's doing with the Lord. And it may be that the Holy Spirit has highlighted these shepherds for all of these reasons. But the most significant thing about these shepherds is not just that they show up in verse 8. But it's what the Lord does in them and through them, beginning in verse 15. And that's because by the grace of God, these shepherds display something of the eager obedience of a simple faith. That's the role that they play in this narrative. Think about it. We have thus far in our studies through Luke seen three angelic announcements. And the initial reaction to each of those announcements has been very different. The angel appeared to Zechariah, and Zechariah was unbelieving. This priest answered an angelic visitor with his objections. You know, I'm pretty old. <laughs> My wife is pretty old. I don't know how I can believe these things. How shall I know this? That's his question. It was a question of unbelief. And Mary did a little bit better. She was believing, but she was very inquisitive. How will this be? I, I, I'd really like to know how it fits with what I already understand. And can you, can you explain it to me in, in a way that I'll understand it? And she's inquisitive. But the, the shepherds are different. They respond with faith in action. Simple faith, simple obedience. They say to one another in verse 15, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. Verse 16, and they went. There you have it. They didn't sit around pondering the possibilities. They didn't scoff at what seemed impossible to them. They got up and they moved their feet and they went to see what the Lord had made known to them. And they went with an eagerness, with a, an expectation that when they got there, they would see exactly what the Lord had told them. And when they found him, they opened their mouths. 
They began to speak of the Christ that they had encountered and the message that they have heard. And isn't that refreshing? Isn't that just what the Lord does with his people today? How many of you remember that initial rush of joy the first time you believed the gospel? It might have been very simple, but you heard it and you believed it. And you you didn't need all of the other uh, apologetic arguments that all the scholars can spend all their time with. And that's good, and it's a worthwhile pursuit. And I hope if you're a believer that you're growing in those areas, but do you remember what it was like simply to hear and believe? Do you remember the joy of the first time you opened your Bible in haste? You couldn't wait to get to it and open it because you were convinced that when you looked in these pages, you would see something of Christ. And it would make sense of all of your guilt and all of your shame and all of your heartache. Do you remember what it was like to fly to him? Do you remember the zeal to tell somebody, anybody, it doesn't matter, who it was, that zeal and that desire to tell someone about what the Lord had done for you in Christ. And you didn't have all of the theological categories to make sure that it would pass the Presbyterian sniff test, but it didn't matter. Because he had done something in your life, and you had to make it known, and you had found Jesus just as it had been told you, and you had to tell others what you had found. This is what the Lord is doing in these shepherds. These poor, uneducated, outcast shepherds. The Lord has turned them in a matter of hours, minutes. He's turned them from hearers into heralds. And it doesn't matter to them that some of the people that they tell never make it past the wondering about it stage. And they're speaking of Christ and everybody else is going, I I don't know about that. But they keep talking anyway. It doesn't even phase them when Mary doesn't get past the pondering. And she's just treasuring it up in her heart. And we'll find later that Mary still doesn't quite get it because she comes with Jesus' brothers to say, maybe you ought to scale back what you're doing. She's the mother of Christ. An angel appeared to her and she's still figuring it out. But these shepherds are simply believing. They're witnesses that we were told and we went and found and you need to know about this. So simple. The Lord has filled their hearts with faith. And out of the abundance of their hearts, their mouths speak praise and glory to the Lord. And isn't it interesting? I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting that in verse 14, we have recorded for us the last angelic announcement in the Gospel of Luke. Now, after the resurrection, there's mention. There's an allusion to another angelic announcement that happened, but we don't actually witness it. We don't actually hear what was said. These are the last angelic words that we hear in the gospel. Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased, and then silence for 23 chapters. And that means this this is a turning point for us. The angels have preached the gospel. That's the word, actually, in verse 10. Good news. Fear not, for we have a a message of good news. They preach the gospel to the shepherds. And by faith, the shepherds begin to preach the gospel to everybody else that they can. And that is the pattern for the age of the church. 
And that means that we see at least three surprising truths in the passage of the Incarnation. It means, as we've already seen, that the sovereign ruler entered into our suffering. It means that we have seen the Lord of glory who walks in humility. And here with the shepherds, it means that we're seeing the eternal word who now waits to be spoken. I hope you understand what I say by that and what I mean by that. That the eternal word, Christ himself, the incarnate Lord, now waits to be spoken. Of course, God is speaking. He continues to speak through his word and by his spirit to his people that we have in scripture, a living and active record of of the whole mind of God for his people, all that we need for life and godliness. And he is speaking whether we want to hear him or not. It is not as though the Lord is silent. And I realize that after the service today, one of you is going to pull me aside and you're going to tell me about your friend who was converted from Islam because they had a vision, a dream of Jesus Christ, and I'm happy for that. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about here is the fact that since Christ has come in the flesh, since he has lived and died and been raised again, since he has delivered his final and full revelation through the mouth of his prophets and apostles, the normal and ordinary way that the gospel goes forth is not by dreams and visions and angelic announcements. Christ, the eternal Lord, the sovereign, supernatural King, the creator of the ends of the universe, he for whom nothing is impossible, is content to have the gospel go forth as Christians speak of what they have believed to non-Christians. That is the paradigm. And we see it beginning to work already in the shepherds. The paradigm for the church and for you and for me is Romans 10. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call on him in whom they have not heard? In whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So maybe this is surprising to you, but what we find is that the eternal word now waits to be spoken. And he speaks through his people and he gives his spirit to inspire their speech and to speak to others. But that means that the only question that is left for us to ask today about this passage is that if this passage is so familiar to you that you could recite it in your sleep, If though you've heard it a thousand times, you still rejoice in the truth of it all. If you take delight in the Savior who took on flesh for the sins of his people, if you delight and rejoice that all of this is true, the only question that is left to ask is, who are you going to tell? Please pray with me. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the incarnation. We thank you for Christ who came, who took on flesh and endured suffering and came in humility, who gave himself as a ransom for our sins. Being put to death on the shameful and cursed cross, he was laid in the grave and raised again in vindication of his righteousness. And now we have a hope in him life and forgiveness and peace with God. Oh, 
Lord, thank you for your good favor upon your people. Thank you for the Savior whom you have sent. Oh, Lord, help us to delight in Christ all over again. And delighting in him, open our mouths that we would speak and we would praise and glorify our God in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.